Good afternoon. The Buddha was said to have said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So in these past two days, you may have been studying the former part of that sentence. <laughs> Many people today said, yesterday was horrible. <laughs> and yesterday sucked. <laughs> today was much better. <laughs> so hopefully in the course of this talk, you'll understand and appreciate that your study of suffering is a causal factor leading to the end of suffering either momentarily or substantively. And the Buddha clearly knew about suffering. He lost his mother at birth. He had a princely life, but had a lot of family pressures, expectations, as we all do. He renounced that comfortable life, became an ascetic, lived a very austere ascetic life. Uh, had a series of realizations that were deep penetrations into the nature of the human condition and taught for the 45 years. Um, but in that 45 years of teaching, not so easy also. Had a lot of rivals, a lot of enemies. People tried to kill him, including his cousin. Um, had to manage very intricate political alliances with kings and royalty and got sick, had back aches, uh, eventually got sick and died. Not exactly a happily ever after kind of life. Yet was also known as the happy one. The happy one. It's a very interesting mm, statement. So how, did, how was that possible? How was that discovered? How was he able to, as he put, to find peace beyond conditions, peace beyond the, the, the daily uh, experience of life? So in his first teaching that he gave to his fellow ascetic practitioners, yogis, like you are, maybe not so ascetic here, but yogis, meditators that you are, spiritual seekers of truth, he gave a teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the Dharma Chakra Pravatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma Sutta. It was the first teaching that he gave uh, coming from his realization. And it's that teaching that I want to speak to tonight, sometimes referred to as the Four Noble Truths. I prefer to uh, understand as the Four Tasks the four imperatives to act in our life. So in his diagnosis of the human condition, um, he followed a, a medical formula looking at uh, diagnosis of the human condition, which is there is suffering. There is pain in this life. It doesn't take a medical a PhD to figure that one out. There is suffering. The second truth, the cause, there is a cause. 
reactivity, grasping, contentiousness with our moment-to-moment experience. The prognosis, there is a cessation possible from this affliction of suffering and reactivity. And the fourth truth, the fourth truth, the 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 um, uh, sorry, yeah, the fourth truth being the prescription, the third being the prognosis, is that there is a path, there is a way out of suffering, of reactivity, of this endless cycle that we're in. So, in terms of the the tasks, the truth of suffering is to be understood. The second task is to release the cause of suffering, to release this grasping, fixated, reactive mind and heart. The third task is to realize the cessation, the end of reactivity of suffering. And the fourth is to walk, to cultivate the path to awakening, which is what we're doing here. So I always think of the teaching of the four truths as the good news in that it lays out to some degree some sense of a map of the human condition and also a path to the possibility of finding ease and a genuine sense of well-being and peace right amidst our very life, right here, right now. Not somewhere in the future, not in some rosy Uh, nirvana, enlightened retirement home, but right here in the midst of whatever you're sitting and walking in. So that's the invitation, that's the orientation, and I want to just unpack some of that. This direct meeting, the immediacy of life and experience, understanding how we create and accentuate unnecessary suffering and pain for ourselves, and how to find peace in the middle of that. So I just came back from England, where I'm from, and there's a wonderful uh, book series that one grows up with as a child in England called the Ladybird Books. And they're this very quaint, they're sort of from the 50s, of, of, of various descriptions of, um, of life, and, and now they've done an adult series, not that adult series, just a grown-up series of the Ladybird Lady books of everything. I got two for Christmas, the Ladybird book of hipsters and the Ladybird book of mindfulness. So I was really curious what it had to say about the mindfulness, and it's, it's, it's written in a very sort of, sort of sing-songy uh, song. So there's a picture of a nature scene and birds. Alison has been staring at this beautiful tree for five hours. She was meant to be in the office. Tomorrow she will be fired. (laughs) In this way, mindfulness will have solved her work-related stress. (laughs) So this is one way to free oneself from suffering. (laughs) And on it goes. They're very funny. They're very delightful, especially if you've grown up with that sort of, that kind of style. So our first task here is to understand suffering, to understand this dimension of human experience. The Buddha didn't say life is suffering. He just said that there is suffering. As you can see in your life, as we can see looking at the state of the world, 
as we can see in our moment to moment here in what is a very beautiful place, still there's plenty of suffering. Is there anybody who hasn't been suffering the last two days? I don't see a huge show of hands. So what's radical about this practice is is an invitation to meet it, to turn towards it, to understand it, to embrace it, and in through doing that, we can find some freedom from it, in the midst of it. There's this lovely line from Achan Chah, who's one of the lineage teachers, who said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. We spend a lot of our time in our life running away from suffering. However you do that, whatever substances you use, whatever, how far you travel, you go to Hawaii and guess what? Your mind follows you. You go to Bali and your painful emotions follow you. Eventually we have to turn and meet the reality of our experience. And in that we do ourselves a great service. What we're doing here is training ourselves. As I mentioned this morning, uh, this is a training uh, in resiliency, a training in how to meet the most difficult experiences in life, including our mortality. Suzuki Roshi wrote once, you don't really know what it means to meditate until there is some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and worries and sorrows and thoughts, and you sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So how many of you are sitting in the midst of many of those things? Thoughts, fears, worries, pain, sorrow, frustration. Not all that, there's also joy and peace and love and kindness. But you're learning to sit and meet that and not just flip out your phone and go surfing. To not go down to the bar and have a beer, but actually sit in the middle of it. This is, this is how we learn from our experience. So the Buddha, the word the Buddha used for suffering is dukkha, which some of you will know. Dukkha is one of these Pali words. Pali is a language that the texts were written in. And I use them occasionally because they, they're such rich, multifaceted words that in English we don't necessarily have a good enough description. Suffering doesn't quite uh, uh, flesh out the, it, it, the fullness of this word. It means difficult to bear incapable of providing lasting satisfaction and satisfactoriness. So we can look at our experience and see, oh yeah, I can see how here I am at Spirit Rock, I'm well fed, there's lovely people, there's teachings, it's safe, I'm warm, but maybe it's a little unsatisfactory. And it's a rub. It's the princess and the pea. It's the way that we... Uh, the mind is, with its negativity bias, always finding something that's not quite right. Oh, if only I'd brought my cushion, if only I brought my nice shawl, if only they turn the heat up or down, if only they serve cappuccino, if only, if only we could just go to bed at six or get up at ten or whatever it is. Right? There's a rub. This is dukkha. This is part of our experience. My definition of dukkha is it's hard to be human. And it's just the nature of being human. We're subject to all kinds of things, which I'll describe in a minute.
So the Buddha talked about dukkha being not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you have, separated from that which you love. Anybody here not getting what they want? Like a calm mind, like uh, a pain-free body, like um, a, 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 a meditation that's not full of sleepiness and distraction? Okay. Think of the many things you don't get in your life that you want. Love, connection, meaning, safety, okay. getting what you don't want. Right. Or many things that we get that we don't want. Physical pain, dealing with racism, dealing with misogyny, dealing with um, a crazy political system. Not how we want them to be. How do we relate to that? Losing what we have. Right? This world is vulnerable, subject to change and loss. We can't move through this world, however blessed or young or whatever you are, without losing things. Loved ones, youth, health, vitality, cherished moments or experiences, friends. California, there's been a lot of loss, mudslides, tremendous fires, 7,000 structures in Sonoma County. A lot of loss. Being separated from that which you love, another form of suffering. All the many things we're separated from, ourselves, our true nature, seemingly, we're not in contact with it often. about all those who are separated from those that they love who have been deported, the millions who've been deported and are being deported. The immigrants, the refugees, 65 million refugees in the world not able to reside safely in their homes. This is part of the dukkha of being human in this world. The Buddha also talked about dukkha dukkha, not just dukkha, there's dukkha dukkha, which is dukkha having a body, the dukkha of having a body. You've got to rest it, and then after you've rested it, you've got to wash it because it starts to smell. And then you've got to feed it because it gets low blood sugar. And then you've got to put liquids in it because it gets heat dehydrated. And then you've got to get it in some form of transport to a work so you can pay for all that stuff you've just done. <laughs> and, then, and then like Groundhog Day, the same thing the next day. <laughs> you feed it, you've got to wash it, you've got to clean it, you've got to make sure it doesn't get aches and pains, keep it warm, keep it cold, whatever. Nietzsche dukkha, the dukkha of change, the dukkha of transience. Someone was talking about a, a beautiful peak moment in meditation. You know, I forget what it bl- bliss, space, someone was talking about. And then the bell went. <coughs> no! Damn it! Everything changes. Sankara dukkha is the third form of dukkha, which is everything is conditioned. Like the retreat is a conditioned, structured process. However wonderful and amazing, come Friday, you can't move in here. You have to go home. I'm sorry. Some of you will be happy to go home, but some of you would like to move in and stay. All conditioned things like retreats, like bodies, like relationships, like all kinds of things come together and fall apart. They're in, in by nature uh, unreliable, uncertain in a certain way. This is a challenging predicament to live in. This is a challenging planet you chose to come into. 
maybe you didn't choose to come into, but here we are. I don't know how that happened, but anyhow. So how do we deal with this, right? We can, we can, be a, we can collapse into victimhood. We can complain and moan. The world isn't making us happy. We can get reactive and grumpy and resistant, right? And what does that do? It creates more suffering. We need to find a more constructive orientation to meet life's challenges. And we all have challenges. However blessed your life is, you have challenges because you have a body and you have a heart and you have a mind. And they're out of your control and you have to deal with relationships and economies and political systems. So we need a lot of compassion. We need kindness to meet ourselves and the various particular challenges we go through. Maybe you have chronic fatigue or you have some kind of debilitative illness or you have a history of trauma or many, many things. And there's a line that I love. It goes, be kind to every person you meet meet because each has been asked to carry a great burden. We know from looking at our own lives that we have our own burdens. Everybody here is not exempt from that. Therefore, the most helpful thing we can do is to be kind, to meet that with compassion. And to also meet it with wisdom. And the wisdom arises out of our mindfulness practice, which is clear seeing, meeting experience as it is, and, and, and meeting the truth of it. This is the nature of things. They come and they go. They're uncontrollable. They're subject to loss. When we can meet the reality of it, we're not so in contention with it. So we can find some ease, and I'll talk more about that. There's a line, whoever came up with this line, suffering equals pain times resistance. Right? Pain is the dukkha of life. The suffering that we add to that is the resistance, the struggle, the fighting the res- you know, with that. Franco once wrote that it's not the load that wears us down, but how we carry it. Not the load that wears us down, how we carry it. How are we carrying our load? Mindfulness is revealing how we carry that load and how we can work with it constructively. This is from Achen Sumedho, who Bonnie's referred to before, a wonderful uh, monk and teacher who studied, the, the, and he talks about his, his whole practice is, has been a study for the last 50 years uh, maybe 45 years of the Four Noble Truths. And it's one of those teachings that you can deepen and deepen into understanding. He says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, which is the third Noble Truth, which I'll speak about, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it is embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, Then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it. We welcome it. We concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom and despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. This is a courageous practice. We're turning towards our physical pain, our loss, our feeling of emptiness, our midlife crisis, our uh, distractible mind, you, know, you name whatever 
experience you're encountering, encountering here, the invitation is to be with it, to feel it, to know it, to see how it comes and goes, to see how it's out of our control, to see that the agency we have is around our relationship. So as we often say in this practice, it's not what's happening, but how you relate to it. How you're relating to this experience that's unsatisfying. This is one way we experience it. This is a cartoon. The person's meditating and the thought bubbles come up. Come on, I almost had it. Come on, peace of mind. I don't have a freaking day. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? Impatience. You know, we've got to have a sense of humor about ourselves. You know, we're funny. We think, all right, just get, come on, peace of mind. Okay. not working I'm not enlightened that's a little exaggerated but not really so um, we need to have a sense of humor about ourselves and we need to meet our experience as I said with kindness I'm going to share this story that I share a lot and it's a sort of amusing uh, pointing to um, how we need uh, a lot of kindness with our journey A man's observing a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her shopping cart. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies, and when told no, the little girl immediately begins to whine and fuss, and the mother says quietly, Now, Monica, we only have half the aisles left to go through. Don't worry. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle, and again the little girl clamors for candy. When found out there's no candy to be had, she has a tantrum. And the mother says again, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to, let to, to go, and then we'll, then we'll be close to checking out. And then when you get to the checkout stand, the little girl again immediately begins to clamor for gum and bursts into terrible uh, crying fit on, upon discovering that no gum is purchased. The mother again patiently says, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in, f- in five minutes, and then you can go home and take a nice nap. The man follows her out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he said. What do you mean, the woman said. My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) This is the dukkha of shopping with young children, right? How do you meet that? You meet the suffering that you're dealing with in the face of a tantrum screaming child, right? But this is a good metaphor for our practice. Where, how could you say to yourself, there, there, whatever your name is, there, there, only 20 more minutes to go, your knees won't fall off, just feel the pain or just move, right? Or whatever your there, there is in whatever situation you find yourself in. This is dukkha that invites our invitation to know it, to get close to it, to feel it, to understand it. And then the Buddha said, what is the second truth, the the truth, uh, the cause of suffering, of our emotional, mental, psychological suffering? Anha, which is a word that means thirst, um, also translated as grasping. The mind that fixates, the mind that demands, the mind that, and I gave this talk last night, I was having to give a talk down in the community hall, and um, I, said if, I said there's one way to, dis- to summarize this teaching is this to that. The clenched fist 
to release. Grasping tanha, reactivity, is the contracted mind, heart, body. And the release is the opening, the letting go. Throughout our day, we move, we oscillate between this and this, this and this. And the invitation is how to release this tight fist of grasping. That's our task. But we can't just do that just when someone says, well, just let go and you want to give them a piece of your mind because you can't because you're holding on to that thing that you want, that person that you desire, that experience that's slipping away. Not so easy to let go. So we want to study what is this fixation, this grasping, this contention with experience. So there's three kinds of uh, tanha. The first is the the tanha, the the thirst for sensory experience, for sensual pleasures. We can experience this a lot here. You're sitting in meditation, you're a little bored, a little restless, 20 minutes to go. Oh, let's have a sexual fantasy. That's more interesting. Or maybe it's, you know, 1225 and there's just this insatiable craving for food because you're dying for some kind of entertainment because it's so dull here. Craving to be outside because it's more stimulating and rich. We go through life craving on this, on this insatiable treadmill of wanting sensual, sensory pleasure. We're, we're, we're innately, biologically hardwired to move towards the pleasant, to the pleasing. Right? So in the, in the teaching on the four foundations that Buddha talk about, every experience has a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. We, we're, we're seekers of the pleasant, we run from the unpleasant, we space out to the neutral. Think about how much of your time and your life is spent chasing sensory pleasure. A good meal, a good bottle of wine, a good movie, good sexual experience, a good, you know, who knows what experience. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. And in your meditation, your mind will be full as it is in your life with endless desires. Desire for this, desire for comfort, desire for, you know, whatever it is, money, experience, status. Not a problem in and of themselves. The problem is is when we fixate, when we grasp and take hold of and demand and attach and expect that experience to happen, expect life to, to deliver that. So this... Uh, cartoon from the far side. Let me see if I can find it. Man walks into a bar and um, this is Dukkha not being able to find the, um, the right uh, thing that you've carefully prepared hours. 
right? This is dukkha. I was, uh, before I was giving this talk, I was on the phone to my bank because a check didn't go through and I was overdrawn and then my credit card statement didn't get paid and it was an, an extra hour long of phone calls. That is dukkha, the unsatisfactory day-to-day dukkha of life. Not big dukkha, I didn't lose my house, but still unsatisfactory. A man walks into the bar, it sounds like a Dharma joke. Please, un- please understand, I can offer you I can only offer you the fleeting illusion of happiness, the barman says. Why is this unsatisfactory? It's unsatisfactory. If, if, if seeking sensory pleasure worked, we would have a sensory feast and say, dig in, enjoy, spend the whole week diving in. Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it work? Because it doesn't last, right? Last. We can enjoy it and appreciate the beautiful nature here, a beautifully cooked meal, the, the aesthetics of this room, but none of it lasts. Where are your most peak, amazing, ex- pleasurable experiences? In meditation, in life? They're gone. Right? So we can appreciate them, kiss the joy as it flies, live in eternity, sunrise, as Blake said, but not bind to it. He who binds to himself a, a joy does the winged life destroy. But we can only know this through intimately looking at our experience and seeing how everything comes and goes, that nothing lasts. The most sublime meditation, gone. The most peak, transcendent experience in your life, gone. It may inform you and it may, you may enjoy the memory of it, but it's gone. So we're, we're saving ourselves from suffering by seeking that and demanding that which is inevitably going to pass. How much do we hold on to pleasant experience? You know, I, 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 you know, maybe you have a rare moment of thoughtlessness and, and bliss in the meditation. Go, oh, don't move. Okay, shh, shh. We start getting reactive to people who are disrupting up bliss. <clears throat> One of our teachers in India, Punjaji, used to say, "The thief of peace is the desire for the transient." You know, we want to have compassion for this movement because our culture tells us happiness is in stuff. Happiness is in, sh- is in shiny toys and new digital gadgets. Right? Again, temporary happiness, yes. The lasting peace that we're looking for, no. Here's what our culture tells us about, about the wanting mind. There's a guy sitting in front of all of his gear, his, 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 all the things that gives him pleasure, his scuba equipment, his kayak, and his surfboard and golf clubs and guitar and dog and guitar and just a bunch of stuff in his truck and his skis and he's sitting and meditating like this which which you know if you see an advert any photo like that you realize people don't know what meditation is because you can't sit like that for very long without getting sore arms but anyhow spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy to be one with everything he says you've got to have one of everything that's why he also has the new Ford Ranger, so he can seek uh, enlightenment 
on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of awakening and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than to planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So there you go. Go get your Ford, seek off, seek uh, uh, wisdom on a mountaintop. Not. Right? But that's the conditioning. That's, that's our part of our hard wiring. So there's this grasping, the fixation for the pleasant. And then there's the grasping, uh, what the Buddha called vibhavatana, which is the, the, the desire to become, this force of becoming. I'm not going to say much about this, how we might speak to this tomorrow. The, the endless desire to be somebody. The endless self-improvement project. The endless spiritual uh, search. The endless improving of our identity. The grasping after a certain persona, a certain personality. Tomlin wrote about this, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. <laughs> uh, f- one of our colleagues was, talks about, he's doing walking meditation. Someone mentioned this in the group today a little bit. And he's walking, he likes to walk really slow. And he feels, you know, times that, 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 that spiritual identity comes up. And the thought comes up as, looking good, looking good. <laughs> this is me. Really most mindful kid on the block here. Right? This is the seeking, right? And we're seeking, we're seeking so many things through our identity. Identity is such a force of grasping and also of suffering because that too is tenuous. This is from Ajahn Suchito, who's also a wonderful uh, Buddhist monk and teacher in this tradition. He said, craving to be something or someone is not a decision. It's a reflex. The thirst to be something keeps us reaching out for what isn't here. And so we lose the inner balance that allows us to discern a here and now fulfillment in ourselves. This constantly seeking outside of ourselves for something or some identity robs us from the peace that's available right here. One of the ways I hear this a lot as a teacher is I should be further along in my practice than I am. I should be a further along in my meditation or my life or my spiritual path or whatever. Good luck. You are where you are. To have that benchmark comparison is just suffering. That kind of uh, fixation is vibhavatana, which is the, the reaction away from experience, the wanting to not be here, to not exist, to get away the aversion towards the unpleasant. Anybody have anything unpleasant happening today? Just a little or a lot, right? right? If we pay attention, we see our, our, our life is a waterfall of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutral. If we're not mindful, we're busy pushing and pulling and contending and reacting to that stuff, and we feel tossed around where there's no, there's no inner stillness in the midst of it. Mindfulness provides the clarity and the, and the seeing and the knowing to know it's just life's movement. We don't have to get pushed and pulled. We don't have to fixate and demand. We can find a spaciousness and ease. 
So the craving not to be here, the craving to get away, the craving to check out, the craving to, sometimes the craving is, is to destroy that which is causing us uh, agitation. You know, sometimes I'm teaching and I'll look, around, I'll look around, see how people are doing, and someone's making a lot of rustling or something. They're, change, you know, they got, they're wearing, as one of my students called, swishy pants. Someone, someone walks in the room with those nylon pants. You love them. And people are meditating like, that's, that's, the, that's the aversion to the unpleasant, right? <laughs> or we feel that inside, like, oh, they just shut up, right? Here we are opening, developing loving kindness and peace, and I'm just going to kill my neighbor if he breathes again. He's so loud, right? So we go from the micro, and, and we laugh, right? And we, we have this phenomenon called yogi mind, which is things get accentuated here because there's nothing else to focus on. So we fixate on these things. They're funny and they're silly, but they're a tremendous cause of suffering and they're metaphors for how we are in life, right? All those, all those contractions and resistance and avoidances and fears and aversions, it's what we do in life all the time, except here we're seeing it. So it's a great chance to learn how do I react to an experience I don't like and don't want and, and by doing so get all riled up and, and frustrated and agitated rather than just going, oh, that's some pleasant sound. Oh, my body's aching this morning. Oh, my heart's feeling really agitated and sorrowful. Oh, it's like that. Noise is like that. Pain is like this. Sadness is like this. So we're bringing a radical meeting of the truth of what is. And also acknowledging the resistance. Oh, reactivity is like this. Fear is like this. Anger is like this. And we feel the turbulence and the heat and the tension and the contraction. So some points about this movement of mind. These movements, the desires, the wants, the resistances, they're endless. We're not necessarily needing to end them because the, the mind-heart will keep churning them up. But our, our practice is to find presence and wisdom in relationship to them, a non-reactive, uh, disidentified relationship to them. see the folly of the chase outside of ourselves, to see the pain of the contraction in ourselves. To see how we latch that onto our meditation practice and we spend time longing for a certain spiritual experience or meditative experience. How much of you, how much of you trying to manipulate, rather than just be present to what is, you're trying to manipulate experience so it's nice. So you have a kind of quite, you know, pleasant, you know, easeful, blissy, yummy time. But it's natural. I do that. We like to have pleasant meditations. But that's not what mindfulness practice is. Mindfulness is this radical meeting and knowing of our experience. And it doesn't matter how it is, whether it's boring, exciting, tedious, beautiful, ecstatic, or painful. 
Our practice is to welcome and sit in the fire of that. That is peace. That is freedom. That is your capacity. That is the fruit of this practice. It's from Jan Chosen Bay's Zen teacher. And as he's talking about this radical meeting of experience, I vow to choose what is. All things come to be in this passing moment, and I vow to choose what's here. If there's cost, I choose to pay. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. Right? So she's welcoming all of it. All of it. And if we don't, we contract, we resist, we grab on, we attach, and we suffer. We add to our already pre-existing suffering condition of being human. Right? can't do anything about the birth, aging, sickness, and death for the most part. It's going to happen at some form or other. But we can learn how to have a skillful, non-reactive relationship that makes that so much easier. So the key, as I keep talking about, is this relationship, the attitude. So whatever's arising in your practice, I think there's really two or three things that we're doing. We're noticing what's happening, and we're being curious about how we're relating to that. Am I receiving or reacting? Am I allowing or rejecting? Etc. Etc. This is from Einstein. He said, the greatest freedom is the ability to choose one's attitude no matter what the circumstances. So we have this powerful gift of mindfulness that gives us the tools to do this. We can see with awareness when we're just being present, when we're caught in reactivity, when we're fighting with experience, It also gives us a capacity when we are caught in reactivity, which we are plenty, and it's not wrong to be caught in reactivity. We're just seeing the painfulness of it. So when we're caught in the deepest longing for something, for someone, for some fantasy, feel the longing. Don't judge it as bad or wrong. Feel how it feels. We generally don't think of longing as painful because we're fixated on the beautiful thing we're longing for. But if we actually pay attention, the longing it's actually quite painful. There's a contraction, there's a sense of deficiency, a sense of emptiness, a sense of belief. I'll only be happy when I get this thing. Feel the, the changing nature of these fixations. Right? No matter how unpleasant and painful something is, it's going to pass. Right? When we have an intense emotional reaction, as we, too, as we might when we think about something in our past that triggers us and we're back in an argument and we're raging, that it's usually it lasts for about 90 seconds, the, 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 the peak of uh, emotional reactivity. Right? So we can find the peace in the changing nature of experience. 
When, when I talk about letting go of grasping, um, I'm not talking about letting go of the thing itself, but letting go of the reactivity around it. So for example, um, let me see if I can do this. Can I do this with a flower? Okay, pretend this is a flower. Pretend this is a daffodil. And, and you've, pretend this is a tulip, and you're living in the 18th century where tulips were more expensive than gold because there was a perceived value in tulips. And there's only one tulip left for sale, and there's two people in line, and you want it, right? And so with, the, with, your, with your grasping, fixated mind, you... <laughs> turn it upside down, and you grasp it, and you grab it. Or you, maybe this is a person that you want, and you kind of grab them, and you try to control them and change them, and as we do with our partners, and it, it never works, but we do it anyway. And we fixate, and we tighten the noose. It's painful. It's painful for us, painful for them. When we talk about re- releasing the grasping, we're not talking about releasing the person. If that's your beloved, you're not going to do that. We're releasing the grasping. So it allows the flower or the person or the experience to be as it is. Does that make sense? So there's a lovely line from Tulopa, a great Indian teacher said, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our inner attachments to them, our inner fixations. We also want to notice the belief system that's fueling this reactivity, which is usually goes something like, if only... If only my pain would go away, I'd be happy. If only they would serve coffee in the morning, I'd be enlightened. If only, no, 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 right? Notice the, the belief system, which is usually diluted, that's fueling the reactivity towards experience. So the third truth, and I'm going to whiz through these last two because it's dinner time and I can, don't want to be in the way of your, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. The third truth is the cessation of suffering, right? Is the peace. It's what we're longing for, what the Buddha called niroda, the cessation of the cause of suffering, which is reactivity, which is this grasping, fixated, aversive mind. It's this allowing life and experience in ourselves to be as it is. And I'm not talking about not acting in life. I'm not talking about not responding in life. And I'm not talking about being a doormat in life. Right? This is nothing, it's not about inactivity. This is about cultivating a wise relationship with experience out of which wise responsiveness, wise action, wise engagement, wise social action, wise activism comes. Right? But first we have to see clearly. If we're, not, if we're triggered... We're not seeing clearly any action that comes out of that is going to be reactive and probably lead to more suffering. Out of mindfulness comes clear seeing, comes understanding, comes wise action and insight. So the third truth, the task, is to realize this cessation, to realize the end of suffering, to realize the passing of reactivity. And we can see this moment to moment. The next time you get caught up, maybe you're caught up now, maybe you're like, talk be over, dinner happen, please, talk be... Notice the grip, right? I call it the grip. This is the grip of the clenched fist. Notice the grip. Notice at some point, for various reasons, that will soften. Or you bring mindful 
mindfulness to it. As soon as you bring mindfulness to the reactivity, you're not quite in it. There's space around it. At some point, it will release itself. As it releases itself, that become that moves into cessation, the cessation of reactivity. And that moment is momentarily peaceful, freedom from the afflictions of mind. And we experience that a lot in the day. We just don't notice it because as soon as something's released, like, oh, he's finally stopped talking. What's for dinner? And we don't notice that, that abatement of, of, of conflict because we're on to the next thing, right? Buddha Dasa called us moments of nibbana, moments of freedom, moments of non-reactivity. We have many of them in the day. Pay attention to them because they're illuminating and they're reference points for how to be with life. The next time you're fixated, notice how it releases. Notice how we can abide in a non-contentious relationship with experience. And we have that choice or that invitation moment to moment, not needing it to be different or not demanding it be different than it is. And our life and our bodies and our hearts and our mind and our relationships and our politics will demand us, invite us to do that in every moment. I've been dealing with a lot of chronic back pain for the last year or two. Spasming, contraction, uh, etc. And it's a wonderful practice to see when I'm mm, resisting it, hating it, not wanting it, fighting it, which of course, guess what? It just makes me more tight. And when I'm softening and allowing, opening, just going, oh, numbness, oh, burning, oh, tightness, oh, searing, oh, constriction, oh, whatever it is. Oh, it's like this, it's like this. And when I soften that attitude in my mind it, and, I, and I'm able to also soften some of the contraction in the body, it's okay. I still don't like it. I still don't want it, but it's okay. There's peace in my mind and heart in relationship to it, even if it continues, which it does most of the time. So to pay attention to these moments of cessation, which we have a lot. The doorway to that is to let go, to release the reactivity. Sometimes we can't release the reactivity because it's so strong. So rather than letting go, we let be, we allow, we pay attention to it with kindness and curiosity. So that's the third truth. The fourth truth, fourth truth is simply the path that leads to the, the cessation of suffering. So much of what we're doing here is an integral part of the path. The path is basically every aspect of our lives needs to be incorporated and integrated into the path of practice to allow a full realization of freedom from suffering in this life, in the midst of our lives. And, and we'll maybe talk about that at another point on the retreat, but the path of meditation, the path of understanding, the path of ethics. Our meditation here serves our understanding, uh, which serves the way we move ethically in the world, which informs our meditation, which informs our wisdom. And, and like so, we develop in our understanding uh, our internal and external experience. So to summarize, 
the, these truths, these tasks, right? The good news is that there is a way through uh, reactivity. There's a way to work with the suffering in our lives. To understand, to come to be intimate with it, to understand it, to see where we get caught in reactivity, to see how we have the possibility of release in any moment, and how we can cultivate a practice like mindfulness, like kindness, like letting go, etc., that allows us to live in that understanding. Sit for a moment, let's just take those words in. You, can, you don't need to change your posture. Sit here, notice, is there any contention or movement towards or away from any experience? Possible to simply be with what is without reactivity. Peace amidst the very conditions that are right here. Nothing needs to be different to know that. Thank you for your attention. You will now have the pleasure of enjoying the sensory delights of dinner and notice the relationship to that experience as you move through it, both enjoyment and knowing that it's inevitably going to end, no matter how many seconds and thirds you have. Okay. Enjoy and we'll come back here for some sitting at seven fifteen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharmaseed.org slash donate.